the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> oh, I can't stop doing that. You guys, I hope you've had a really nice week. Happy Friday. I don't want to make this a rant episode, but I feel like we're all feeling the same frustrated way about the news that President Joe Biden is unconstitutionally uh, forgiving student loan debt across the country, and it's going to cost a pretty penny. It's going to frustrate, and it has been frustrating, a lot of people who worked really hard over decades, years to pay off their debt or people that had to choose a different path in life because they made the financially responsible decision to not put themselves in debt in the first place. Um, everybody's talking about it. I didn't want to make this a rant, but instead I wanted to talk more about the solutions and really evaluate where did we go wrong on this? I have some personal stories of it, and then I also want to take a, a bigger societal overview look onto this issue from literally elementary and middle school up through the college experience and then as adults where we went wrong in those generations. But with that being said, let's get started. So first, let's start out with the actual announcement from President Joe Biden, where he explains what's about to happen. My campaign for president, I made a commitment that would provide student debt relief. And I'm honoring that commitment today. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic, making under $125,000 a year. You make more than that, you don't qualify. No high-income individual or high-income household, in the top 5% of incomes, by the way, will benefit from this action, period. 95% of the borrowers can benefit from these actions. That's 43 million people. Of the 43 million, over 60% are Pell Grant recipients. That's 27 million people who will get $20,000 in debt relief. Nearly 45% can have their student debt fully canceled. That's 20 million people who can start getting on with their lives. Oh. There's a lot to break down there, you guys, but just the the basics that really caught my attention. So if you're earning less than $125,000, you're going to get $10,000 of your student loans removed. That That's covering millions, 40-something million people will have their student debt canceled or or some of it. Um, I, I truly find it fascinating. Uh, from one just financial perspective, it's like, if you only have $10,000 in debt, like he's saying, like 45% of those people will have their full student debt canceled with this $10,000 amount, then I find it highly selfish of you 
to want to have the federal government, a.k.a. the American taxpayers, take that burden off your shoulders. That is a very manageable amount of debt, okay? It's something that with a proper plan, you should be able to pay off, especially if you put your college degree to use. So right from the start, that really frustrates me, okay? We aren't saving people from a debt that they'll never get out of. This is just them being lazy, if you ask me, if they have that smaller 10,000 range amount. Looking at it from the political and governmental perspective, this is an unconstitutional move, and even Nancy Pelosi herself last year admitted it. Let's listen to what she said about this when she was asked in 2021. People think that the president of the United States is this more on the subject than you ever want to know? Will you let me know? People think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. He can postpone. He can delay. But he does not have that power. That would that has to be an act of Congress. So what do you know? Freedom Papers got to bring that into this. When we go over the Federalist and Anti-Federalist Papers on Freedom Papers for Turning Point, me and Connor Clegg, we look at what our founders intended and what they promised. So the anti-federalists were very worried about ratifying the U.S. Constitution because they were worried that with time, it would be able to balloon into this uh, monarchy or some sort of oppressive, tyrannical style of government that would overpower the American citizens and the states. So they were very concerned. Eventually, of course, they have this agreement, right? And because of the anti-federalists, we have the Bill of Rights, you have the agreement that as, as long as we have certain declared rights, we will agree to ratify. We will tell our supporters to also vote to ratify because the people of the states had to vote and approve the Constitution. It wasn't just this randomly created thing, right? This was supposed to be done by the states and by the people of those sovereign states. Uh, the Federalists, though, they were arguing that, no, 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 the proposed Constitution has enough uh, checks and balances separation of powers and uh, measures within its infrastructure that it would prevent monarchy or oppression or any of these things. And it would actually be more wise for us to form together into this union and create a strong but small federal government that would only operate with four basic functions. (laughs) Now, looking forward from that moment when they're having this debate, it's like, wow, we really uh, went far. And what the example that I always talk to you guys about is this example of Dr. Fauci being given funds, right? And then he's like, you know what, let's use American taxpayer funds. Uh, I'm an unelected bureaucrat. I'm going to send these taxpayer dollars overseas to go fund a study that tortures puppies and puts their faces into cages and has fleas eat the puppies' faces. What? How did we go from the founders worried about creating a small but strong federal government, or even if one should exist in the first place, to now you have a $400,000 salaried unelected bureaucrat paying for puppy torture and an American president forgiving loans that students who went to a college don't want to pay off or are claiming that they can't pay off. Well, in the instance of this, removing us from that that Dr. Fauci example, right, with the tortured puppies, I, I use that all the time. This is going to be done, what, under the Department of Education. The Department of Education is not something that's in the Constitution. It was not something that was constitutional to begin with because education, since it's not listed in the Constitution, according to the Tenth Amendment, you're not supposed to have the federal government handle things that are not listed in the Constitution. Education is not listed. That means it's a state 
right. It's an issue that should be handled by the states or lower. So now we have this federal Department of Education. And like we've talked about when I had my conversation with Paul Gosar, congressman from Arizona, what happens is the legislature, the founders gave the legislature that is most closely tied to the people of America because they have to represent us. They have to get elected every few years, every two years in the House, every six years in the Senate. They are allowed to be given the most power, a.k.a. funding power and the ability to tax, the ability to make laws. That kind of stuff is really important, right? So the people that are most directly tied to the American citizens and taxpayers have that jurisdiction. Well, with the creation of the American executive branch bureaucracy, the Department of Education, the health and human services, all of the things like the people like Fauci are put in charge of, They now have spending power. They now have the ability to make decisions that directly affect us. And for example, you now have, and in my opinion, a tyrannical step of Joe Biden to say, you know what, we're going to use American taxpayer funds via the Department of Education to literally pay off people's student loan debt. How did we fall so far from what our founders intended? But you guys, can you see why that is just so important for us? why it is so crucial that we look back to what our founders wrote, why it's important to understand the original intent of things. It's not because, oh, well, 300 years ago, they didn't have a big college system. So how would they know? It's like when people make the Second Amendment argument all the time. Well, we didn't have machine guns back then. Yeah, it's more about the core principle of creating a small but strong government, just like with guns where, yeah, no matter what guns they are, the whole point is that the people should have the power to stand up against a tyrannical government. And when you remove firearms and the ability to wage a battle against the government, you're removing the power of the people. So the concept is more rooted in the power given to the people to defend themselves and protect themselves against tyranny. The situation that we're dealing with right now is we've also forgotten the original intent of keeping a very small but strong federal government. When you forget these things, you end up with a situation like we're experiencing this week. So this is constitutionally wrong. But what is it also wrong in terms of basic morality, you guys? Because it's wrong to take something from someone else that they earned. It's wrong to make a mistake and then make someone else pay for it. These are very basic lessons in life. And I'm very frustrated with the fact that we are a morally, spiritually, physically and mentally weak population. But what really grinds my gears with politics is that we truly are an immoral population these days. We are immoral voters. We don't care the kind of impact that is put onto other people just so that we can benefit just a little bit more, right? I mean, imagine that $10,000 in debt and you're saying, you know what? I'd rather have $300 billion be taken from American taxpayers that could go to greater causes, even if it's an unconstitutional move, just so that I myself can be added to a massive group of millions of people that will have their $10,000 of student loans canceled. I believe it is selfish and it is wrong. And if you understand basic morality as well, this is a flawed decision by many, many, many people who are behaving in a selfish way. Instead of thinking about the long-term longevity, the success of a nation, they are willing to take whatever they can get. Now, this reminds me especially of that. There's this comparison of JFK. He had that infamous quote, right? Of ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That was many decades ago. And now we see things, I think his name's Ed Markey. 
I might be wrong on this, but he's a senator from Massachusetts. And his campaign video just last cycle was literally, you guys, him twisting. And he's a Democrat, distorting this phrase. And he is also a socialist, okay? So his socialist view on JFK's old quote is now, it's time to stop asking what we can do for our country. And it's time to start asking what our country can do for us. Well, that's not a very American mentality, but the fact that you have Democrats that are in office and then campaigning with that kind of phrase and slogan and they're winning and the young people love it and they're succeeding and they are pushing this Marxist mentality of uh, divisiveness and class warfare via the forced redistribution of wealth that is taking place with the student loan forgiveness. I mean, you guys, if you're not concerned, then you clearly aren't paying attention. So morally, constitutionally, this is very, very wrong stuff. And it's very upsetting. Now, playing off of that idea of this is just basically immoral on a very basic level. It's not right to look at this and come out of it thinking, you know what, I'm going to let other people pay for my mistakes. Because on a on one level, you can look at it and say, it's wrong to ask society to pay for my mistakes. But it's another when you bring it to a more personal and intimate level. And that's what the left really can't handle. I mean, I remember a very viral clip of Elizabeth Warren being asked by a voter at her campaign event, listen, I saved up my whole working life so that my daughter would have money to go to college. And now I'm paying off and we're paying off as a family her debt because we wanted her to get a degree. And is any of that money that I paid into it going to be paid back to me now? Because I worked hard and I saved my money and the viral video went viral because she basically like laughs in his face and she's like, no, they are desensitized to the fact that what they are doing is so fundamentally wrong, which is ironic coming from the side that believes this kind of stuff. I think that there's a lot of people more concerned about being precisely factually and semantically correct than about being morally right now that's our favorite socialist alexandria ocasio-cortez when they bring in morality usually they have the sad stories usually they have the struggle bus examples that are usually the exception and they're able to push this emotional narrative onto us even though we have the facts and the history and the data the statistics to make the case they win because they make the emotional argument and so i think what we're experiencing with this issue is the emotional argument is actually much more on our side. So they're trying to make that emotional argument of like, well, these people are strapped with debt and they can't handle it. And it's very hard for them. And then we're like, okay, well now what about the people that completely course corrected their path in life because they looked at the numbers and made a financially responsible decision to not pursue a certain school that they wanted to go to. And instead they went to community college for two years and then they went to a four-year school or maybe they only went to community college and so they were limited in that capacity. Maybe they didn't go to college and they looked at careers and trades that they could look uh, for a successful career in where they make plenty of money and then not be strapped with a ridiculous amount of debt. Or maybe some people just went to school went to college because I totally get it. For some careers, you do need to go get trained up in a specific field. And then you have that degree to say, hey, listen, I now have five years or four years of training to maybe be an engineer or whatever you want to do. And now I'm qualified to work in this field. That on a fundamental level makes total sense. I'm not saying all college is a scam, you guys. But so those people that went and got an engineering degree, 
little smart cookies, right? Okay, so now they're earning enough and they have a job because jobs exist in that field and they're paying off their student loans or are about to. Okay, so they made smart decisions along the way, whether it was what school to go to, what career to choose, how long to go to school, and so on, what to study. You could go on and on and on in the many decisions that you are presented with in life that could help you avoid becoming a victim, right? But when we look at this from a political lens, because we've done, you know, the moral lens, the constitutional lens, let's look at this from a more political angle. When I first started my nonprofit where we interview survivors from communist countries, one of the things that I really loved doing was going to colleges. I've told you guys I did the speeches, right, for the students, and I would kind of train them up on like, here's the groups of the left. We've got the Justice Democrats, the Democratic Socialists of America, the Sunrise Movement, the BLM. They call themselves what? We uh, are trained Marxists. That's my girl Patrice, a trained Marxist, founded Black Lives Matter and then proudly self-identifies as that. Uh, we have Antifa. I, I would go on and on and I'd explain their tactics after explaining the groups. And some of the tactics that I would explain to them would be redefining words, right? I mean, rewriting history, what happened in the past. And this was all the control and narrative. Another thing that I would talk about was uh, splitting up a population via Marxism, which is dividing the classes against each other, the haves versus the have-nots, the rich versus the poor. And then another was utilizing a moment of chaos to create a crisis or rise up with a natural crisis to gain power because the left always seizes power during a moment of crisis. But back to that point of using Marxism, we have seen Black Lives Matter utilize cultural Marxism for quite some time in our country, right? Because what are they founded by what? Marxists. We, uh, are trained Marxists. And so we see that all the time. Not only do they divide us with things like race. And so guys, cultural Marxism, by the way, is dividing a population, not based on class, but based on other forms of identity. So race, religion, gender, sex, all the sexual orientation, all the things, all the identities that the woke left has created. So they're kind of thriving in this environment because they can continue to divide us with new (laughs) definitions, new groups that they're creating, new identities. It's like, an endless plethora of radical wokeism being utilized against us to continue and further divide us. Um, But to that Marxist point, one of the stories that always caught my eye was how when Fidel Castro was rising to power in Cuba, he had a more violent revolution. They fought against Batista. Their numbers were very small after that first battle. And then they made their way uh, from the outsides of Cuba all the way to the main city to Havana where they were going to eventually have their overthrow and to grow their ranks, to build up their movement. They would stop in towns along the way on the countryside and talk to the poor people, the working class that were working in the fields. And they would say, you see those rich people over there, those evil people with all that land, all those farmers with all those animals, all that food. It's not fair that they have that much food. It's not fair that they have those big houses. It's not fair that they have that big piece of property, all that land, all those resources. It's not fair. And it's not fair that you have so little. And so what we did is we just went over and we stole their animals and now you can have them and you can eat with them and you can use them because that's what's fair and moral and just. It's not fair that they had that stuff to begin with. What's fair and moral is us taking those things back from them because it's not fair they had them in the first place. So they're making it moral to steal. You guys, did you notice that? They're normalizing forced wealth distribution 
redistribution because they're normalizing the concept of it's okay to take it from someone else because it's not fair that they had it in the first place. So give us government power to do this. We will take it from them, give it to you. And that truly is the more moral thing to happen because I believe, and especially if you read things like mere Christianity, and I'm going to read that for you guys in a second, human nature and the presence of an almighty power, the presence of God. I don't want to get too Christian in it yet because, and he kind of makes the case in that as well. C.S. Lewis, he's like, listen, we're not even going to get to the, the Christian God stance yet. I'm just saying there is something out there that makes us feel a pit in our stomach when we do something wrong. There's human nature, which leads us to, you know, make some bad decisions, right? But there is also inside of us a feeling of, oh no, maybe I shouldn't have done that. You know, if you cheat on someone, for example, if you cheat on a test, if you cheat on a partner, if you steal something, you you feel this gut instinct of like, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I feel bad about this. And and so C.S. Lewis makes the case that that is the presence of God in our world. That idea that we have this moral law, it doesn't come from nowhere. You feel bad about doing that kind of behavior because you understand on a very basic level on the inside of you that that's instinctually wrong, even though as flawed human beings, we are driven to make some bad mistakes sometimes. And that's that difference, human nature versus moral law. But to beat the feeling of moral law, the radical left will use Marxism and normalize in our minds that it's okay to take in this situation because it's not fair that those people had it in the first place. There's also clips, if you guys ever want to watch, AOC has a lot of interviews where she talks about how those evil CEOs, right? They just sit on a couch as their employees make the widgets and then the evil, evil bosses and CEOs make all this money because they're stealing the profits that the workers are actually creating the value in and then earning, the workers earn that money. But then the CEOs of those companies, they actually steal the profits from the workers. The money belongs in the workers' hands because they're making the widgets in AOC's eyes. And she tells that to everybody in her crowd. And the crowd goes, oh yeah, so if they had their money stolen from them in the first place, then it's only right and moral and fair. It's righteous to actually just take it back because they stole it in the first place. Really? Really? So it, trying to understand them is kind of like mental gymnastics, but it helps us understand how they have been so successful when they're preaching this kind of stuff to a very frustrated and financially struggling base. So taking that into a modern twist of like Fidel Castro and his team stealing animals and then redispersing them throughout the population in Cuba to win the favor – we aren't really in a situation right now, thank the Lord above, that we're needing socialist leaders to go steal other people's animals and give it to us for food because we're starving, right? So put this into a modern American 2020s perspective. What's one way to push this same kind of normalization of forced wealth redistribution into the minds of Americans who are struggling? It is the fact that tens of millions of people are strapped with student loan debt and now the left campaigns, and I, we have clips of Bernie Sanders doing it. We have clips of Elizabeth Warren, of Ed Markey, of AOC. And they say, you see those evil rich people over there? Just like Cuba, just like Castro, how they did this. You see those evil farmers with all that land, all that money, all that food. Now we have modern American politicians that say, you see those evil business owners, those evil CEOs, those evil rich people, that the evil 1%, it's not fair that they have that much money. And it's not fair that you have this much debt. Put us in power. 
give us more political power, and we will take it back from them, back, emphasis on back, and we will give it to you because it's right and moral and fair. Now just join our political movement. On Elizabeth Warren's website for president when she ran in 2020, I believe, when she was in the primary, you could go on her website, you guys, and it was a little calculator of, if you vote for Liz, check out how much money will be forgiven from your student loan debt. And so I played around on it and I, I checked out, like, what if I put in a certain amount? I put $100,000 of student loan debt that I had. I've made that up. I do not have debt right now. I put $100,000 in the calculator and it says, see how much will be forgiven. And then boom, on the screen flashes $50,000 will be forgiven if you elect Elizabeth Warren for president. <laughs> it's like, wait, is this, does this count as buying votes? Like, do you see what I mean there? It's like, really? I mean, $50,000 is a lot of money. That's one way to really convince a voter to vote for you. Now, will you follow through on that promise or will you not? I don't know. The left campaigned on basically canceling all student debt. And then now they're getting 10,000. So on the left, they're complaining that 10,000 isn't enough. On the right, we're going, are you kidding me? And then in the middle, people I think are also going, are you absolutely kidding me? Because that all gets back to the point of, okay, some people looked at the current messed up system that is the college process in America. And they said, wow, this is insane. I'm not going to submit myself to this. Or they said, you know what? Given these circumstances, I'm going to make XYZ different choices. And I'm not going to go to this school, but I'm going to go to a more affordable one. Or I'm going to go to college for two years at community college. Or I'm going to do this instead after that, after I graduate. Or I'm going to choose a more strategic career for myself. Whatever choices they made, or you know what? They pushed themselves through the four years of a regular school. It was pretty expensive. And then they worked their butt off with a second job. Or they're just still with debt, but they wanted to take on that burden because they understood that's the sacrifice and choice they made. There's a bunch of different angles here. But a lot of people did that. So now we're put in a problem as a society of, okay, how do we solve this? And that's what we're going to talk about for the next half of the episode. The big problem that we're dealing with here should not be, how are we going to remove people's burden of paying off the student loans that they're now strapped with? This is a corrupt system. We need to forgive people's debts. How come... The side, you might be asking, how come the side that's so concerned about the student debt that people are strapped with, how evil it is, how come they're not really concerned with solving the actual problem that is creating the issue itself that they're trying to deal with? Wouldn't you want to solve the actual college system issue that's tricking 18-year-olds into signing on to a massive amount of debt? That they, as they turn into their 25 to 35 year old range, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get out of this. <laughs> Maybe that's where the focus should be, but it's not. So why would Joe Biden cancel $10,000? Why would he do it? I don't know. Maybe because it's August, right before the midterm elections. And the left has completely failed the country in the last two years under Joe Biden's administration. So they've had every single kind of policy and leadership failure you can imagine from the Afghanistan debacle to the massive inflation, to the shortages, to the failed COVID policies that they are now walking back slowly but surely. Because they failed us in every way, they need to have this last-ditch effort to try and win some votes ahead of the midterms because they're about to lose the House. They're probably going to lose the Senate as well. Please, I, I'm really hoping that they do. This was a massively transparent vote-buying process. Okay, that's all it was. 
That's why they're not interested in solving the actual issue of the college system that's broken in our country. That being said, though, just because they're not interested in it, that doesn't mean we don't have to try and find solutions. It doesn't mean we have to ignore the core problem here. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about. Now, as a society, I think we've been sold a complete box of rocks. I think men and women are, have been completely screwed over by a system for decades. The parents, the students, the young children, at all of these different levels, whether it's the pop culture that sells it to us, the guidance counseling system, the loan process, or the college system itself and the general economy, every step along the way, our country and perhaps the other countries, I don't know as much about them, our country is making major misstep after major misstep. And you know what? It's time to stop. And that's why I wanted to read this little section from Mere Christianity before we get going on talking about the solutions regarding this broken system. So if you guys aren't familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis, I highly suggest that you go and get his signature collection of books. My favorite is Mere Christianity. And the story behind it is really, really beautiful. I love history, so I have to tell you this. The story behind it is that as World War II is happening, people are distraught over in Europe, right? And so they're being bombed and morale is really, really low, whether that's among the troops or the citizenry. And so the radio station at the time asked C.S. Lewis if he would come on and do a series of talks into the radio about Christianity. And the, the importance here is that this was a very godless time, apparently. And so a lot of people had lost their connection to God. They lost the importance of it in terms of understanding how crucial it really is to maintain a relationship with him. And so this was something that a lot of people hadn't heard in a long time. And so eventually they turned his talks where he's just casually speaking into the microphone into written pieces. He releases them. And I believe in this version, he, he makes some adjustments just to kind of help because when you're talking like this, it's a little more casual. And so um, it doesn't flow necessarily when you're reading, but he made a few minor adjustments, but this is truly what he was saying in the radio to people who are being bombed at the time and just kind of listening to this. Think about it like in a dark room in the early 1900s. I find it fascinating, but this chapter is called, We Have Cause to Be Uneasy. And I find so many moments of this book, Mere Christianity, to really connect to other issues, whether they're political or societal, cultural, and it's because they're very fundamental views of everything. So he says, I ended my last chapter with the idea that in the moral law, somebody or something from beyond the material universe was actually getting at us. And I expect when I reached that point, some of you felt a certain annoyance, you may have even thought that I played a trick on you, that I had been carefully wrapping up to look like philosophy what turns out to be one more religious jaw. You may have felt you were ready to listen to me as long as you thought I had anything new to say. But if it turns out to be only religion, well, the world has tried that and you cannot put the clock back. If anyone is feeling that way, I should like to say three things to him. First, as to putting the clock back. Would you think I was joking if I said that you can put a clock back and that if the clock is wrong, it is often a very sensible thing to do? But I would rather get away from that whole idea of clocks. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, 
Progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. We have all seen this when doing arithmetic. When I have started a sum the wrong way, the sooner I admit this and go back and start again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistake. We are on the wrong road. And if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. So I always think about that because the left, they call themselves progressive, but whenever they implement their leftist ideas, they end up being archaic, completely destructive, and massively regressive. They regress society backwards. Society does not progress forward to a point that we all want to achieve. And we see that in American blue cities now, but we also see it with things like the structure, the infrastructure that we have set up for an institution. And right now, what made me think about this is the failed structure and process that we have for educating our children from a very young age and then up through college and the expectations of what it means to go to the workforce. So let's let's think of this on a very basic level. Why do we have people go to college? What was the original purpose? The original purpose was to get trained up and educated in the field that you were going to work your and your position, your career, so that you can earn money and take care of yourself and your family, right? You're getting an expertise training in something that you would like to do to earn income. You're trying to gain experience and an education in that field. But now it's turned into a complete humble jumble mess where from a very young age, think, I mean, even elementary school and middle school, you can see a ton of TV shows, movies, and general pop culture and cultural discussions around the fun years of college, right? Where you see all these party movies, you hear these pop party college songs, and you see these general societal expectations forming around you when you're young that kind of uh, create in your head this idea of what college is and college should be. And it's completely far off from the original intent of going to become a, a, an experienced person trained up in the field that you would like to work in. It is not supposed to be four years of fun party time. And unfortunately, that's what it's become. So in one avenue, let's just follow the path and then I'll talk to you about some complaints that I have later on. But you see this kind of pop culture stuff and from a young age, it forms in your mind that college is like this super fun time to live it up and it's your last hurrah as an adult, yada, yada. Everybody goes to college and all the, the movies and TV shows, everybody's asking where they're going to go and you have the grad party before you go to college and everybody's wearing the college t-shirt in high school. But I remember in middle school, first of all, no one is talking about this in, in the school system of like, hey you're intended to grow up and become a contributing member of society. I remember in middle school, we had to take this stupid online test and it asked us what we liked at the time. Now for little middle school Morgan, I didn't really like anything except uh, doing sports and stuff. And so I remember at the time, because I'm a dumb middle schooler, they had us fill out this personality career test and then literally made us go onto a path in our potential education uh, experience in middle school and high school based on this stupid test. So on my test, I'm like, I like soccer and track and lifting weights. And it's like, oh, huh, 
you should be an athletic trainer. <laughs> you should be a soccer coach. <laughs> it's like, what? No, I should not be. But because a middle school Morgan enjoyed playing sports and was asked what I like to do in life, they're like, you know what, young lady? You should go to college for athletic training. What? And so I remember I was on that kick for like quite some time. Thank goodness I was done with it. Okay. Ew. No offense to people that do that. I just mean like that's so, it's the antithesis of what I am now. Now that I'm an adult with a functioning brain, why are we even making middle schoolers do a test like that? Uh, that also brings up the point of, well, Morgan, maybe middle schoolers shouldn't be asked about that by the school and it's a parent thing. That, that's exactly my my perspective on it. This is something where we've depended on the school system way too much on. And you're going to hear my thoughts on that right now. But we should not be relying, especially in elementary and middle school, for the world to shape our children's perspective of their roles in society and their expectations when they become a contributing member of that community. It should be the parents. It should be the home that really focuses on this stuff. And parents have neglected that duty. But looking at it from the school perspective again, let's move from middle school to high school where I believe starting sophomore years when this happened for me, but the guidance counseling system is completely messed up. I believe sophomore year and junior year, right? You meet one time that year with your guidance counselor that you barely know. They ask you, okay, so what schools are you thinking about going to? What do you like to do? And you go, uh, well, and they go, okay, how about you think about it? Of a reach school? and a safety school, and then a couple schools in between. And if you want to get into this REACH school, I suggest you do a little more community service, look good on the resume, and you should join a sport, and um, maybe maybe do like a church function, and then, oh, and you might want to take XYZ classes. That'll look good on the resume too when you're applying, okay? I'll see you next year. And it's like, what? Uh, 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 what? <laughs> and like, th- there's no questioning of like, hey, Maybe we should incorporate the parents or anything like that. Maybe we should incorporate what What do you see for your whole life? What do you envision for yourself? What are you thinking right now? Do you even feel a passion to go get trained up at a college for a specific field right now? Or should you not be going to college at all? Or do you have a specific career that you're thinking? Because you want to know what, you guys? All the, the messed up kids, all the kids that were a little troubled, all the kids that didn't have good grades, I remember this very well. It was a stereotype to send those kids to trade school. And there was a stereotype that kind of made them feel bad about themselves of like, oh, they get on the bus and they go to the trade school down the road uh, halfway through the day. And there was a stigma. And I am so mad about that stigma that was created. The fact that the school allowed that to be created, the fact that the school really wasn't, and this is not just my school, but just other schools out there. This is a very common theme that trade schools and the people that go are stigmatized for, oh, well, they just weren't smart enough. And so the the guidance counselors told them that they should consider going to a trade school. That's one of the things that I would love to fix. But back to the whole point of you have this one meeting with your guidance counselor and she literally asks you to set up your ex, your goal school, your safety school and a few schools. And she tells you to do a little more community service and take some smarter classes and maybe you'll look good for the application. And hey, see you next year. So then you start going on these college tours with your parents and everybody's got to go on the college tours, right? And then you buy all the cool merch at the stores and you hope to get in, you apply to 10 colleges, you pay $100 or whatever it is to apply to every school. It's a complete mess. And it's all because, hey, we're just told that this is how the process works, right? 
And first of all, where are the parents that should have been stepping in to say, you know what? We're not going to let the societal expectations that the world is putting on, that the country, that this current economy and the government structure around these things is putting on to our kids and our family. We're actually going to set our children up for true success, and we're going to communicate with them from a young age about what life planning really looks like. Instead, a lot of parents, like I said, completely handed over the power to do these things to the school system that literally just teaches their kids to strive for getting into their goal school. So that happens. The next step of that is like, say you get into the schools and like, you know, all the seniors are wearing their t-shirts on the big t-shirt college day. And it just continues to build this momentum of, oh, well, college is just so important. When in reality, all of these kids are going to what? $60,000 liberal arts schools to get completely pointless degrees. Very few of them are actually going to a school because they want to pursue a career that requires experienced training in that field that they could not complete that job without the experience in. It's very, very lopsided in it. I, that's my personal experience. And then it's also proven by the data that most people are getting useless degrees. And a lot of people don't even use the degree that they got and paid for when they're actually in the career that they end up in. And to be honest, you want to get a little radical. I don't think it's right to force this onto women because half the time women are raised up to with the same societal standard expectations that men are given these days instead of saying like, hey, you should really consider family planning for yourself. Do you want a lot of kids? When do you want to start having kids? You should consider the fact that you might be paying for a degree that you might use for seven years. And then once you're married and have babies, you realize how beautiful that process is. And that's your most important job. And now you're strapped with student loan debt and you're a stay at home mom because that is one of the most important jobs in the world. We don't say that to women. I don't know why, but if I could change one thing, it would be that. No, I have a few things that I would like to change. I don't want to pigeonhole myself to one thing. But the next thing is, hey, you get to college and First of all, half the time when you're picking your school, your guidance counselor in high school is like, hey, just go with undecided. And then once you get there and think about it, then you can uh, change it to your degree. (laughs) So then a lot of people go to college with literally a major called undecided. Guys, we're getting scammed so hard. It's not even funny. So what happens is, what do you know? We're told that you just got to go to college, right? And so instead of going to classes that have to do with your future career and you're paying a boatload of money for each class, for each credit hour. At my school, it was $1,400 per credit hour. Each class was about three credit hours. So you could do the math there. It's insane. And half the time the school say, well, first you got to do all these gen ed credits. And then after about two years, when you've done all your required gen ed credits and you've taken your poetry class and you've done your painting class and you've done your history class about the ancient worlds, then you are in the clear to get your accounting degree. (laughs) Like, what is that? It's a scam, you guys. And they want you to have to be at that school as many years as possible because they want that tuition money. Okay. So moving into this, If you're going to college with an undecided major, you should not be going to college, but they've normalized it. And so I've had plenty of people that I know that did undecided for one or two years. And then by the time they realized, uh oh, I want to do X, Y, Z major. Guess what? They have to stay an extra one or two years at college and pay 
for more school because they went and they were paying tuition for dumb, dumb classes that had nothing to do with their major and didn't help them reach their required class standards to get that specific degree that now they've decided they want. So that's a blast. Um, Same thing with undecideds. These college scammers have now made it even more difficult to become more efficient with getting your degree. So for example, so I went to American University in Washington, D.C., I looked at a ton of different schools and I wanted to end up in Washington, D.C. or in the region. So I got into a few of the schools in the area. I got into a few of the schools up more in the Northeast near my family. And after looking at all the finances, American was the easiest one for me to manage because I had about three years of a scholarship that would help cover thanks to me being a member of a veteran family. My dad served a uh, on the scene of 9-11, I believe on 9-12 or 9-13 is when he got there, and then also in Operation Iraqi Freedom. So his service builds up a certain level of credits or whatever they are that American, because I think they just have a great veteran community there, they help out children of veteran families and help them with these scholarships. So I was looking at the financial options. American would be easiest for me, but it was only three years. And so I looked at my process and I said, okay, well, I'm going to try and graduate in three years because I can't afford an actual full year tuition at American. It would be about 70 grand. Okay. That's never going to happen from Morgan Seggers. Okay. I would absolutely never. So I got creative and I went to my guidance counselor at college and I said, hi, uh, I would like to see if your policy would accept my high school credits because in high school I took calculus, I took a bunch of AP classes, I took a bunch of classes that would count as college credit or at least that's what our high school guidance counselors told us. I took French for a few extra years because that was supposed to count as a college credit and our high school people told us that that would be the case. So I worked my butt off and didn't do study halls in high school like a lot of people were given the option to. And instead, I took more classes thinking it'll help me become more successful in college. So it ended up paying off because I go to American and I'm trying to shove all of my required classes for the major into three years. Luckily, I was able to do that. I just did a few weekend classes and then I did um, some later. I just like overloaded my credit. Um, board or whatever it was called to do more than the standard amount. And it means you have to like pay a little bit more or something like that. I can't really remember the process, but I shoved it all into three years. And then fortunately, uh, the French classes that I took, the art classes, the math class that I took, all of those high school college credits that I took in high school transferred, or for the most part, they transferred over to my college degree to wipe out the gen eds. And so like, I didn't have to take poetry class because American wanted you to do all these gen ed classes that would make you a more well-rounded individual, right? It's like, okay, I, if I wanted to be well-rounded or if I wanted to learn skills or if I wanted to do a poetry class, I would probably just go to a poetry night on a Wednesday night or something at a local coffee shop and really immerse myself in poetry. Same thing with painting. One of the required classes I had to do because I didn't have a high school credit in college was a, get this, you guys, four credit Four, F-O-U-R, four credit painting class. Keep in mind, like I said, a credit was about $1,400 at American. So times that by four. And for an entire semester, I had to spend hours in a painting class. Now, Morgan loves painting. I love the Wild West paintings that are all over Instagram. I'm going to fill my home with them one day. I'm just not, you know, we're balling on a budget, okay? Um, 
one day I will be able to afford these kind of paintings, I imagine, I ideally. And I love painting. That class made me hate painting because it turned it into an assignment. If I want to become a well-rounded individual that likes painting and poetry, like I said, I'll go to a coffee shop for a poetry night or I'll go to a painting class on a Sunday evening or something like that at a, a local wine bar. I don't know. I will learn to paint on my own time. Like, wh- Why can't we just have hobbies instead of paying a school to teach us how to have hobbies? So that's one of the things that was just really annoying to me. But I I did all the math and I created this plan of like, I think that I could shove all this into three years, right? And then I asked my college guidance counselor to review it and approve it just to like give me that, okay, I feel peaceful about this. She approved it. I'm not going to be given a hard time. I'm going to be able to do this in three years. And um, she actually gave me, <laughs> she was like, yeah, you know, this could technically work. But Morgan, are you sure you want to do this? You really become... <laughs> This is so funny. You really become the person you're meant to be in your fourth year of college. Are you sure you want to take that away from yourself? And you guys, I'm a practical person, okay? There's nothing you could do to try and get me to pay $70,000 to stay another year at a pointless university. And so I was like, thank you, but no thank you. Um, I don't know who would want to pay $70,000 just for the argument that, hey, you really become the person you're meant to be in your fourth year of college. (laughs) So that's the kind of argument they're making. Now, I graduated with a manageable amount of debt, somewhere around 20 grand. And eventually I paid it off with the Zegas Freedom Flags, baby. That's why I started my small business. But what's interesting is that after I graduated, maybe I'm the one who set this off, I found out that after I graduated, American University was going to plan on stopping the program where they allowed the high school credits to count as gen ed credits. So like I was saying how I had my French teacher help me out in high school, my math classes, my my art classes, all this stuff, all of them helped me get the gen ed classes out of the way in my school system in college so that I didn't have to waste my time in Washington, D.C. getting sent through a forced poetry class. Instead, I could fill that slot with a speech writing class, or I could fill that slot with a history class on certain policy in a country or an economics class. That's what I was able to do. Not only was I able to graduate early, but I could fill my class slots with not stupid poetry. I could fill it with stuff that would equip me with the information and knowledge I would need to succeed in my career, because that's the point of college, you guys. And then I found out American stopped accepting, or at least when I was there, they were going to stop. I don't know what the current policy is. They were going to stop accepting those credits. Want to know why? Because they're not actually interested in helping students succeed in that way and make their education plan work for them and their family and their financial status. No, they want to force you to stay there as long as possible. And they didn't like that the efficiency of the high school credit program was allowing students to graduate early, even with getting all the required major classes accomplished. So all the classes that are needed to graduate, you could do it in less than four years. But the fact that people could do it, oh, they were losing money and they didn't like that. And so they wanted to make it more difficult. It's so, so disappointing. So you have these concerns of transferable credits. They don't want that. You have undecided majors that the schools push onto students. They say, oh, well, you'll just enjoy your time here and eventually you'll settle in. Then when you pick a major, maybe you have to stay a few more semesters. But hey, it's college, right? And then you also have people doing worthless majors, absolutely worthless. 
What's funny is I did communications, law, economics, and government. To be honest, I probably wouldn't do it again. I would do business uh, because most of it was like just reading about econ, reading about history, reading about government. I mean, I, I had a few uh, really good classes with like a speech writing professor, stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, I'd rather just read that kind of stuff and learn in my free time and then take more skills-based classes like small business management, small business accounting, that kind of stuff so that I could actually turn my work into a business in, in the future. And I've talked to you guys about that before. But what's funny is because I was in that government space and my major was for Clegg is what it was called. I got, you know, picked to ask to be in like the, the women's program with like, you remember when like women's studies was becoming a thing? Oh my gosh. I remember that at my school where they were pushing it for like all the women to get it. And basically it's a program that radicalizes you and makes you into this feminist advocate. So thank goodness I didn't get indoctrinated into that program. Goodness sakes. And sorry to rant about my story. I just hope that that helps you guys understand how ridiculously scammy a lot of the process is. If I could, I get a lot of questions about this. People asking about my advice for college, people asking about uh, what I think they should do if they want certain fields. To be honest, you guys, we need to get better about as if we're students, if you're in high school right now, if you're in college, I want you to stop right now, evaluate where you see your life going. If you're a woman and a man, those are different life paths. You need to understand that. A lot of people won't tell you that. I'll tell it to you straight, okay? Evaluate where you truly see yourself in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and then put a price tag on how much you're willing to pay at a college for a degree considering your life plans and life visions. Then consider your passions and your hobbies. What is a passion and a hobby, and what is something that you would like to do to turn into a business that you can do yourself and learn yourself and hone your craft in? I've used the example of an artist before. If you want to be an artist, for example, and sell your art, should you go to college to get an art major, to take painting classes, or should you spend your free time becoming your unique self in the art of painting, and then you go to college, if anything, for business? Because you need to learn how to sell your art and succeed in the marketplace. Should you go for marketing, maybe, a combination between the two, so that you can learn how to succeed with the thing that you love and turn that into a business? Because that's what it's all about. We really need to restructure. So that's for people that are maybe trying to figure out your lot in life. First of all, do you need to get a degree because you want to go into engineering or architecture and you need to learn very basic skills that are very unique to that uh, field specifically, then yeah, I totally support that. Look at the financial plans, consider your future finances, consider your future salary, the available jobs, what the market's looking like right there, and truly try and envision and map out a path for yourself. That's one thing. If you really do need that degree, be wise about it, be smart about it. And then when you make the choice to move forward in that degree, you can feel not like a victim strapped with massive debt that you'll never be able to handle, but instead, no, you made a worthy investment in your future and it will pay off if you continue to put the work in. Now, if you're somebody that doesn't necessarily need a degree, maybe you want to go into business or you want to go into a field where people succeed all the time without a degree. Maybe you want to go into politics. One example I use is politics. Never major in political science. No, 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 no. Political science is worthless. Read your political and history and econ and strategy books on your own time. 
it is inexcusable if you need to pay money to people, especially left-leaning people, to teach you how to think about politics. Inexcusable, and I don't think you should be in politics if that's your mentality on how to get educated on these issues and get experience in this space. Is that harsh? That was a little mean. I'm sorry, guys. But it's how I feel. That's partly why politics is so bad, because people go to D.C., they major in political science, and then become some weird consultant that just grows and helps participate in the D.C. swamp. It's weird. If you want to be in politics, you have to ask yourself, what do I like to do? How do I want to contribute? What will make me somebody that's worthy of being hired? Am I into communications? Am I into creating content? And so I either want to make my own content or somebody else's. In that case, you should make sure that you're educated and trained in graphic design and videography and photography and marketing. Do you see where I'm going with this? You need to go to college if you're going to go for whatever it is for skills-based learning no matter what. Get the skills that you need to thrive. So that's my message for the people that are working in that phase of life right now. And I hope the parents and grandparents also hear that message too, because we need to be communicating that to the younger generations. Don't listen to society about what they say about college. Don't try and conform to fit into the expectations. It's okay to be different. It's okay to not follow the, follow all the people, follow the herd of sheep that are going through this ridiculous system. And it's okay to put your neck out there and invest in yourself when you have a proper plan and a proper mindset about where you're taking yourself in life. But to mindlessly, as parents, grandparents, and young adult students, to enter into these loan agreements and to walk into the college system completely blind is really unacceptable right now in 2022. I don't know how you can look at what's going on these days and say, well, that looks like a good idea for me and my family and my future kids. <laughs> Absolutely not, okay? Um, so that being said, a lot of people have been this smart and they just kind of get forgotten. They get overshadowed by these victim mentality people that chose the wrong path in life. And now those same people that worked hard and made the right financial decision and the right career path choices are now being forced to pay off the debts of the people that chose selfishly and blindly to follow the herd. So with that being said, I really appreciate you guys listening to this. I hope that this was eye-opening. I hope it was helpful. And try, try, try to not let this affect you too much with your mindset because it will fester, I think, an issue like this to see that we work so hard and then our taxpayer dollars are going to Ukraine and going to all these crazy things and inflation. Like if you look at my business, I literally started my business to pay off my student debt, which I then did. I graduated in three years because I knew I couldn't afford a fourth year, so I busted my butt for it. Now, years later, I'm still pushing with my business and the Biden economy that these idiots have made with their terrible policy is making my business harder and harder to maintain. There's a shortage of lumber. There's inflation that I, I refuse to increase the product prices on my website because I'm trying to stay true to my customer base. I'm already eating the shipping costs so it's really hard to maintain that business. And then on top of that, it's like, okay, great. Now we're going to use your taxes to pay off the debt of other people that didn't make the better choices in life. It's so easy to look at that and say, I hate the, I hate it all. I hate the system. I'm going to try and stay positive on this. And I hope that you guys do too, that if we really change the mindset about how people view education and skill-based learning, we will be in a better position generationally. 
as a country. So this is generational change. That's what we are all about. I'll talk to you guys later. I hope you have a great weekend and thanks for tuning in. Please give me a five-star review and a worded review if you haven't yet. I would really appreciate it. Thank you. General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.